Mr. Anson. We got Steven Anson on What the Funk today. This is a fun day for me. It's my birthday, Steven. I think I told you that a couple times. So you Happy are- birthday. Thank you. Thank you. 44. Getting there. Getting older every year. That's what happens in life. Uh, but yeah, I'm. Uh, it's nice to have a birthday on a Friday. And birthdays, I think, you know, you've got kids, a family, which we'll talk about. <laughs> at this point, it's like, you know, for me, I'm not really planning my own birthday. So we let my five-year-old son um, plan my birthday this year. So what he chose, because he wanted to pick something that daddy likes, is tomorrow we're going to go bowling. Um, and then we're going to go to Benihana and we're going to watch a movie together at home as a family. And um, it's perfect, perfect little Saturday. I get to pick the movie, I'm told. I have a feeling that's not actually going to be what happens. Uh-huh. Yeah. Love with the you movie. get to pick from what they want. <laughs> that, that, you're good with this, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but nah, it's uh it's nice. And of course, this time of year, right? Um, looking forward to things slowing down at least a little bit. Got a couple more tough weeks of of grinding to get through and then everything yeah. slows down and we recharge and, and come back at it next year. But um, I'm really excited to have you on today, Stephen. Um, you and I met, man, we met in 2020. Um, we yeah. had, you were interviewing and, and in consideration for taking over the measurement lead opportunity at W Energy Software. And, I, and I'd been there for about two or three months. COVID had really just just gone crazy. And we picked a place a diner, I think Broomfield or something like that. And that was like my first time actually either leaving the house or meeting somebody in person. We had to walk in a certain way. There are very like explicit directions. We had to wear masks. That was crazy. Remember that? I do. I do. It was interesting because, you know, I had done a few rounds of interviews with uh, the leadership and um, they said, oh, we have this guy who lives in Colorado. We want you to meet with him. So. Yeah, you and I got in touch, and um, yeah, that experience was different because it was like right at the peak. I think it was like April 2020. Right, so like, you know, lockdowns were really getting serious, and uh, yeah, it was just a weird time. So, and like we had to pick something. I feel like that was in Weld County, right? Because I live in Boulder County, and I think you were in Jefferson. Where, where were you? Jefferson, right? So things were a little bit more shut down there, whereas Weld. I think in part because oil and gas was still happening. Right. It was like, all right, we'll be open, but less open uh, right. than other places. But um, that was a funny experience. I remember my wife was like, how, how was it? I was like, I mean, you know, we just went to a diner and had breakfast. It was pretty, pretty yeah. normal aside from all the weirdness. But um, I, I enjoyed that session with you. We talked about all kinds of things, um, whether it be measurement, midstream, oil and gas technology, which we'll dive into today as well. And I also really enjoyed working with you. It was only about a year, maybe a little bit less. Um, but I think you brought kind of a different flavor. You were responsible for standing up a new division, um, the measurement arm of W Energy Software. Yeah. Um, and you're kind of what I learned after that is you're well connected and sort of widely renowned in oil and gas as the measurement guy. I didn't know what that meant coming into it. So I want to get into all that. But first, a question that I ask everybody that comes on this podcast is, is who are you, man? Who is Steven Anson? Man, uh, 
You know, uh, I guess I like to think of myself as, as you know, generally uh, a good human being with, with interests in many things, right? Um, I'm passionate about my family, I'm passionate about uh, my work, uh, and I like doing things that, you know, help me and help others. Uh, I like to, like to kind of give where I can uh, and lead by example, hopefully be a, a good role model for, for my son. Um, you know, in general, I would say that uh, I think the last time I had to explain myself, I, I would say, you know, first and foremost, a man of God, husband, yep. father, uh, hopefully a friend to a few people out there. And, um, you know, after that, it just trails off into hobbies and interests. Yeah, you know, so a couple things there I wanted to to dive into, and then we'll get into some more of the specifics. But you, you did put on your LinkedIn page, servant leader. And, mm-hmm. and it's something that I see occasionally. And, and I know there's books about it. I think I understand the concept generally. But what does that mean to you fundamentally? And what is servant leadership? Uh, I think, you know, for me, it's it's displaying that you're willing to do the things you ask other people to do, right? Um, you know, in the various leadership roles I've had, it's very hard to disconnect myself from being hands-on because I'm a technical person. Mm. Um, I'm also very type A, so I like things done a very certain way. <clears throat> um, but sometimes you just kind of have to let go and lead by example. And so. When I say servant leadership, it's it's really just I am willing to get in there and do what needs to be done, um, whether that means I'm doing it alone or with others. Uh, you know, I want to help whatever I whatever whatever I need to do to help meet a common goal. Um, I try not to make it about what I'm trying to accomplish individually, um, and at the same time, when I do have people. Uh, you know, who report up to me, making sure I'm addressing their needs for growth and development. Nice. And and you've had some opportunities to display servant leadership, including kind of in your, in your current role at Waterbridge, which, which we'll talk about. Um, but I want to get into some of the specifics about you growing up. Like, where are you from? Where'd you go to college? Um, and then talk about your move as well. When we met, of course, you were living here in Colorado. Now, as you have a sip from your Louisiana State <laughs> Cup, uh, I believe you're in Lafayette, Louisiana. So uh, talk to me a little bit about your kind of upbringing, uh, where you were, where you went to school, and then maybe some of the differences between Louisiana and Colorado. Oh, yeah. Well, um, born and raised South Louisiana, a um, little town called Sunset. No one's really ever heard of it unless you're from there. Right? It is literally a one light town. Uh, there was one traffic light, um, and we lived a little bit outside of town, right? Kind of in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by woods and sugarcane fields. So it was a great way to grow up. I loved it. Uh, we were always getting into all kinds of trouble that a young kid should uh, when they're surrounded by, you know, woods and fields. So, yeah, um, grew up. Uh, I am number six in what I call a litter of eight. Wow. So I've got I've got uh, seven brothers and sisters, um, and 
you know, we're kind of spread out. You know, my oldest sister is uh, 57 and my youngest sister is 36, 37, something like oh. that. So, wow. Yeah. We span it. Um, so yeah, it was always, you know, I've got brothers and sisters who were older and sometimes they lived with us and sometimes they didn't cause they were out on their own. And, um, so it was a big family and, uh, uh, you know, we were, we were all, my dad was very, uh, religious. So he was an ordained minister. Um, yep. so I'm a preacher's kid, a PK. Um, but he, he was always involved in the church, but he didn't go full time into the ministry until later in life. Uh, so he was a petroleum engineer, had his own business. Um, and, uh, but after he kind of sold all that and went to the ministry full time, you know, he had his own church. Hmm. My brother and I played in the church band. Uh, we went to private school our whole lives, uh, up until the 11th grade, uh, 11th, 12th grade, I went to public school just cause, uh, parents couldn't afford it anymore. And then, uh, from there, they got, they got eight kids, man. How, are you supposed <laughs> to, how do you afford anything with eight kids? Dude, <laughs> uh, you know, keeping them, keeping them all in public school is probably why I always felt like we were poor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we were definitely the poor kids in private school. Right. You know, and, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for all of that. It was a, it was a good opportunity for me, uh, and all of my siblings. So, uh, and we've all taken different paths and, and done it in different ways. So it's been exciting. Um, went to college right out of high school to uh, University of Louisiana. Um, ended up uh, losing my scholarship. Uh, so there's this whole thing in South Louisiana called the TOPS program. And it, uh, uh, anyways, long story short, <laughs> lost that and went to work and uh, started working in oil and gas. So I mentioned my dad had his own company. Well, one of the guys who worked with my dad was working for uh, this oil and gas measurement services company. Mm. My dad reached out to him and said, hey, my son's looking for work. Um, you know, if you have anything, you know, he'd like to interview. So uh, that's how I got into it. Um, outside of the fact that I was kind of always working in my dad's shop, you know, as a kid, uh, whatever he needed to to be done is what my brother and I did. And uh, so anyways, kind of used some of that skill set going into work for a company called Southern Flow. And uh, I was a measurement technician. So what that is, is all the meters, all the flow computers, all the devices and transmitters and you know, things that measure oil and gas. Uh, I would calibrate them, I would install them, I would impair, uh, repair them, uh, take samples, you know, different things like that. And so that's kind of how my career segued into that. And I was doing a lot of work offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, I would say 80 plus percent of my work was, was in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so, you know, after working in the Gulf for a few years, I realized that I don't want to work in the Gulf the rest of my life. Sure. <laughs> so I went back to school uh, at night on my days off. So it was really hard to do uh, when you're offshore. So you kind of had to find programs that worked with you and was very flexible and it was hard. It took a lot of time. Uh, but as, anyways, I was able to uh, eventually get a degree mm -hmm. um, and got out of college and used that to 
kind of start looking for other opportunities that got me out of the more manual side of things. I'd taken a, a keen interest in data. And uh, so eventually I got hired by uh, a company, Hess, out of Houston. I've heard of them. And uh, that's what got me out of South Louisiana. And I remember going on this interview, and this is kind of funny and humbling, right? But it was totally country comes to town experience. Like they fly me to Houston, a Lincoln town car picks me up. And, you know, I go to this, I'd never seen a skyscraper before. Wow. And, uh, and I'd never walked through a revolving door, dude. <clears throat> and okay, I remember going in. And so when I went into the building, it was just like a normal door. Right. And then I go in through the interviews and then, uh, the guy who ended up hiring me takes me and the rest of the team out to lunch as kind of part of the interview process. And we're walking out the building through a revolving door. Oh and I got in with him. Of course. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, <laughs> we get out of there and he looks back <laughs> at me and he goes, those are just designed for one per- person at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so I it was yeah, completely humiliating and uh, humbling, but you know, got, I ended up getting the job, and that's what got me into the the data side of things. So I was working with measurement data a lot, um, and then that just progressed through the years. Um, you know, I've had various roles and uh, different uh, data analytics, management, and engineering capacities. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to design some really cool equipment, uh, that's gone all over the world. Hmm. Um, I worked for, uh, a manufacturer for a little while, and that was a really great job. And I had to do a lot of things with, um, their flow technology and, um, research and development and, in new things. Uh, and that really piqued my interest in, you know, how to like just constantly improve a little at a time and. Um, and then, uh, I had an opportunity to get into software and that's how you and I met. So it was interesting. Um, I like to tell people that I do not code. Um, I will have a hard time programming my iPhone, but when it comes to data analytics and structure and arrangement and getting the data to tell us something meaningful, right? I like to, I like to say it's, it's creating a story. Uh, I've become very good at that, you know, and I know how measurement data, uh, is created. I know how the values are calculated. Um, I know what users want out of a measurement data management system, uh, because I was a user of that data for, uh, it's going on 23 years now. Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, I knew what to do. I just didn't know how to do it. And so, yeah, that was my time with, with W Energy was spent developing that. Um, and then uh, I guess the kindest way to say it is uh, our roads started to separate. Uh, and so we separated. And now I'm at Waterbridge, kind of back to my roots in an operational capacity. Um, loving it. Love the people. Uh, it's a new twist because it's not oil and gas. It's produced water. Right. So it's fundamentally, there's a lot of stuff that's the same. So I think I explained it the other day to someone is, you know, about 80% is the same as an oil and gas operation. That other 20% is about 180 degrees different. Yeah. 
So it's fun. It's fun. And is there still a measurement slant to what you're doing on the produced water side at, at Waterbridge? A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I have all of the, I work in our technical field services group and I have all of the field operations, field measurement operations report up to me. So I've got all the technicians and supervisors in the, in the different assets. Um, so we're responsible for design and construction the equipment that gets installed for measurement, all of the maintenance activities, repairs. Um, uh, so all those guys uh, work up, uh, report up through me. Um, and then I have the whole data analytics team in our corporate office as well. So I've got two analysts and uh, one engineer who works for me. And our whole objective is taking this data and uh, like I said, tell a story with it. We balance our assets every day. Mm -hmm. uh, we make sure that our measurement coming in and our measurement going out is accurate and reliable uh, because that's, that's how we invoice. That's how we make our money is transportation and um, you know, sometimes disposal, sometimes reuse of our produced water. So you know, it really is, these meters are our cash register. They're everyone's cash register. So with oil and gas, and I think this is probably a lot of our listeners know, but not all of them, because we get a pretty wide range of, of listeners on this, this podcast and Digital Wildcatters podcast as a whole. Um, a company that goes out and produces oil produces a whole lot more water than they do oil, right? Pulling, pulling that uh, product out of the ground. So somebody has to take that water and do something with it, right? And fundamentally, that's where you guys start your process. Yeah, that's where we come in. So if you think about it... Uh Every well out there produces three fluids, oil, gas, and water. Um, now, those ratios are different by well and by area. Um, in West Texas especially, I think the water to oil ratio is about 10 to 1. So for every barrel of oil they produce, <laughs> they can expect about 10 barrels of water. And you have to get that water out of there in order to recover the oil and the gas. And so... Similar to how oil's been transported over the years, you get two main methods. You can store it in a tank and transfer it to a truck, or you can store it in a, a tank and move it by pipe. Yep. So same thing with water, except for a lot of years, water was just this nuisance byproduct. And so it would get put in a tank and eventually someone would come up with a truck and what that truck did with it, you know, you could throw a dart. <laughs> That's anybody's I, I guess. An array of options, and uh, you know maybe that's what happened to it. So, but the thing is, with with all of this fracking, and especially down in in West Texas, right? <clears throat> all this water, is so it's 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 abundant, right? And there's not enough trucks on the road to to get rid of it. So people started you know converting old oil and gas pipelines into water pipelines. Some people started building their own pipelines. And I got involved in some of that probably as far back as 2015 or 16 when I was with Noble Energy. Um, and we were laying some of our own produced water lines and measuring the water um, and transporting it to, you know, different disposal facilities. But yeah, so that's that's what Waterbridge does is, is we lay our own pipe. Uh, we also have acquired several miles of pipe, you know, through their growth um, uh, that we converted. Uh, but yeah, you, you got to get it off the well pad. And so that's what we do is uh, transport it. And we're, we're a midstream. So we gather and move and, 
In some cases, what's really popular right now is the, the reuse of the water. So right. we'll treat it um, and we'll get it you know, as clean as we can and then we'll sell it back to the producers for uh, frack jobs. That's pretty nice. So you charge them to take it away and then you charge them when you give it back to them. And then we get to charge them again to take it away again. <laughs> and it's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But I'm, I'm sure that the, whatever you charge them is substantially less than what they, they get for their barrels of oil, right? Uh, a barrel of water. Yeah. Is, I mean, I it's, uh, a barrel of water is not worth 80 bucks. So <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, yeah. needless to say. Um, no, that's, that's cool. And I appreciate that, that insight. I, I want to talk about your, your move from Colorado to Louisiana. So, so what kind of prompted that? Obviously you're from there and I, maybe your wife's from there too, yeah. um, but you seem to be pretty happy living here in Colorado. Um, and then, then you made a move. Was this for work? Was this for family? Is this, I can't imagine it's because you prefer the weather in Southern Louisiana, but what, what prompted the move? Yeah, hot and humid uh, versus uh, four seasons is uh, is quite a difference. So, you know, I mentioned that I was hired by Hess and, and they moved me to, to Houston. Um, well, uh, my time with Hess was uh, I was looking for other opportunities and I started a new job with uh, Williams and they moved me up to Colorado. So that's how oh, okay. I around 2011. Um, so yeah, it was work related. Uh, it was it was a good opportunity. Williams was uh, really getting into being a they were a pipeline company, right? But they were really getting into the exploration production side of things, and they had bought some acreage up in North Dakota. And, um, they had a measurement team, but they were all gas centric, right? And they they were looking for uh, other members to join the team who had some liquids experience and. Uh, that was a lot of my background uh, was was liquids, uh, primarily from my, my service technician days. Uh, so, yeah, I had a good opportunity with them to move up there. And we moved, we lived in Colorado for 12 years. Wow. Yeah, we lived uh, right there in Jefferson County in the great little city of Golden. Uh, it was a fantastic place to live. Uh, our son was born there. So I moved my wife up there when she was eight months pregnant. Wow. Better work out then. Hey, dear, can I uproot you from all of your friends and family? We can go somewhere that we don't have any friends and family um, and then give birth to our son. (laughs) So she's been great. She's uh, she's followed me around a lot of places and put up with a lot of stuff. So uh, thankful to have her uh, in my support network. But yeah, I lived up there uh, 12 years, uh, worked for a few different companies while I was there. Um, we mentioned earlier, that's how I met you. Sure. Um, and then, you know, working with, with W energy, I was, uh, a remote employee. So we just started exploring like, you know, do we want to stay in Colorado? And, you know, my mom is, is getting older. My wife's parents are getting older and they all live in in South Louisiana and, and we wanted to get closer to South Louisiana. We didn't, we never really thought Lafayette, uh, but we wanted to get closer. So what we kind of planned on was, well, why don't we just maybe try to execute the old retirement strategy early? You know, let's find some property on a lake somewhere in the South. Mm-hmm. Give us a little, little place we can call home and, and um, 
just start living like that sooner than expected. <clears throat> Long story short, yeah, we just, after we considered everything and we kind of planned this out for the better part of two years, I mean, like visiting lakes and looking at properties, but long story short, we didn't think it was the greatest thing to do from a family perspective. So, but we still wanted to move. So we just kept looking at places closer to Lafayette. And every time we looked at stuff, it just brought us closer, and closer, and closer until finally we decided we were moving to Lafayette. So, Moved back here to be closer to family, uh, which is really nice. Um, you know, we just spent Thanksgiving with all of my wife's family. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and my side of the family, I get to see you know frequently. Um, you know, getting my son into hunting and fishing, like I grew up hunting and fishing, uh, is great. We just uh, we just went hunting, duck hunting last week. Nice. Uh, him and myself and my father-in-law. And, Back 20 ducks, so we got a freezer full of meat, and um, you know, getting ready to do some deer hunting uh, later this winter. So that's what brought us back here. Now, the differences, I mean, outside of the obvious, like weather, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, four four real seasons in Colorado versus um, summer and not quite summer. Yeah, yeah. here. Uh, like what with December 1st, it's 70 degrees outside. Might be warmer. I'm not sure. It's kind of nice though. Yeah. I mean, it is right, but it's going to be a hundred degrees with a hundred percent humidity in May. Yeah. Yeah. So it, that would be weird for me. I mean, being a, you know, I'm a New Hampshire kid spent the first really half my life. I mean, the, the first 20 some odd years in, in, uh, Boston North. And the last 20 some odd out here, it would be strange for me to not have four seasons. You know, it kind of guides what your year looks like and what your clothing looks like and what your travel schedule and all your routines and all that. Um, It's a little bit more temperate here, but you do get four seasons. Um, But I would think as a kid, like I, you know, that's something that's really nice as a kid, right? You go out and play in the snow and, uh, now your son's not going to get that, but uh, you know, you, you do come back here. It seems like you guys have. Yeah. Here. And look, I'm just a big kid. I like to play in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> we skied almost every weekend from January to April for 12 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely miss out on that. And, uh, but yeah, we go back. We were just back there in October. You and I had, had dinner one night. That was nice. Um, we're going to try to go back for some spring skiing uh, later, probably around March. So nothing planned or confirmed, but we're talking about it. And for work, you, Waterbridge is based out of Houston and you go to Houston a couple times a month to be in the office and then spend the rest of the, the time either remote uh, at home or, or somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. So they are headquartered in Houston. <clears throat> um, and I go there every other week. So I'll work a week out of the Houston office and I'll work a week from my home office. Um, and then I have to go to our various assets pretty regularly, right? We just, we have a lot of activity going on. You know, the more producers are drilling, the more connections that we need to make to them. So we've got meter installs, you know, equipment inspections, you know, training, getting, you know, keeping our guys, um, you know, inspired and trained and, 
So you spend a lot of time in the field with those guys. I mean, it seems like fundamentally it's a good business. Um, do you do you feel like you have a lot of competition, or is it segmented by um, geography? Um, are some areas busier than others? Like I would think Permian is probably the busiest area for this, but are there sort of niche operators or what, what should I say, niche produce water companies that exist in Colorado and in the Haynesville Shale and in Appalachia and so on? Um, I'm sure there are, right? Um, I mean, and, and there is competition to, to what we do. We're not the only produced water <laughs> company out there. Sure. Uh, so there is competition. Um, and I mean, we operate in Permian, down in the Eagle Ford, and up in Arcoma. So okay. as far as like niche operators in some of those different areas, probably, uh, I would guess there are. I don't know who they are, but I'm, I'm sure they, <laughs> they exist. They exist. Uh, and did, does natural gas produce as much water um, as an oil well does? So, I mean, it will... So the thing is with with hydraulic fracturing, right? Like, it, you know, in the old days of vertical drilling, it was an oil well or a gas well. Right. And an oil well would still produce a little bit of gas and a gas well would still produce a little bit of oil, but, you know, and water, right? It just, it's how it comes. But with fracturing, it it's all there. You know, it's, it's, it's not evenly distributed, but you get more, uh, I'll say a more balanced ratio, but you, you just get more of all of the fluids. Um, so yeah, it's, it's there, but I mean, fracturing and a lot of it with the fracturing process has to do with you're using water to fracture these wells, right? So that water has to come back out. Sure. So, yeah. Want to touch on, on something else and kind of shifted back more toward personal. And I think this is something that we, we were expecting to get into and I'm, I'm glad we have the chance to do it. Um, I noticed when you, uh, when we were at W energy software and you presented at one of the QBRs, the quarterly business review meetings to the sales team, um, you, you did something similar to what you did today. You said, I'm Steven Anson. First things first, I do consider myself, um, a man of faith, uh, uh, a person of God. Um, and you didn't mention your father being a preacher. You did when we were at dinner, which I found pretty fascinating because, you know, my grandfather was a rabbi. So we have some of those ties with strong um, religious leaning folks. Yeah. But but talk a little bit about about your faith. Um, are you are you Baptist? Are you Protestant? You know, where, where do you kind of lead um, in terms of religion and, and talk about your path with that? Because for me um, and I shared this the last time we sat down. Um, it, it has really ebbed and flowed. Um, mm-hmm. Really meant re- religion. Judaism meant a ton to me and was a big part of my identity up until college age 17 or 18. Started to rebel against it a little bit and then got engaged, married, had kids. And now it's come back full force and really important to instill the um, the cultural elements and the religious elements and belong to a synagogue and all that stuff with my kids. Curious sort of what your path was like um, being in a family where your dad was a preacher and now somebody who still considers yourself a, a man of strong faith. Yeah. Uh, so I was raised non-denominational Christian. Um, and I mean, we were in church at least twice a week, wow. Sundays, you know, and Wednesday nights. And, you know, a lot of Sundays, they were like home groups in the evening. So you had church in the morning, home group in the evening, and then you had, you know, Wednesday night church, um, which was 
was good because um, that's when I participated in a program called Royal Rangers, uh, which is like the Boy Scouts, uh, but it's all done through the church. Uh, so, it, you know, that's when the Royal Rangers met was on Wednesday nights. Uh, okay. So that was really cool. And I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was my life uh, all the way through high school. Because even when my dad went into the ministry full time and opened his church, I was in church with with him every week. <clears throat> um, and so kind of like you said, uh, I had a little bit of a hot, cold relationship going into college. Right. You know, once you're not living uh, with your parents, and they can't make you go to church. <laughs> you know, and so then I kind of, you know, I was not as active. Um, and then, yeah, did the whole work thing, go to school at night and you encounter some hardships. And then you remember that, oh, yeah, there's this this being that I believe in called God who I pray to um, and I believe in and I, and I trust him with things and um so you know through a through a couple of different life events i was like you know i really i really want to give get back to this uh so yeah probably early mid-20s you know i got pretty serious again um and i've really tried to make it a cornerstone in my life um since then now i'm not perfect and i make plenty of mistakes uh and i do things that uh that i regret and have, have hurt others, um, you know, because I know, I, but I'm, I'm not perfect, right? Uh, uh, I'm flawed and I make mistakes. Uh, but what I try to do is try to think and, and lead uh, with with my faith in mind. And so uh, we, we attend a, a Baptist church now. Okay. Uh, you know, that's where I feel like I get fed through my faith the most. Yeah. It's been interesting because we've raised our son um, in going to church and fourth grade, maybe it was third grade. We moved him out of Colorado public schools into a private school, uh, a Catholic private school in um, uh, Arvada, yeah. Colorado. And we did that because of COVID and, you know, the public schools didn't know if they were going to meet in person and, private schools had a plan. And so that's why we, we, we wanted them to be in a classroom. Uh, it's really inspired my sons uh, or piqued his interest in the Catholic face, mm. faith. So my son was baptized in the Baptist church. <clears throat> and then after a couple of years of attending a Catholic school, um, you know, he said, Hey, dad, I think I want to be a Catholic. And I mean, he came to his, his mother and I, you know, like with, with that interest. That's cool. And so we explored what it was going to take for him to convert to Catholicism while we were still in Colorado. Uh, and he started taking those steps <clears throat> and um, he continued it here in Louisiana because he didn't finish it up there. And, you know, getting near the end of it, he, he asked me, he was like, Dad, are you going to be upset if... <laughs> If I become a Catholic, <laughs> and I, he's, was, already, he's already got guilt, dude. He's already got Catholic. He's guilt. already got the Catholic guilt, right? yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought it was very touching and special. And it just, yeah. it, you know, number one, it told me that he cares what I think, uh, but number two, that he's taking this very seriously. 
And yeah. so I just told him, I said, Kyle, I, I don't care if you're Baptist or Catholic or Pentecostal. I said, I just want you to have faith and believe and worship God. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's in a, in a Catholic school here um, and we, we rotate churches. We'll go to our Baptist church and then we'll go to Catholic church. And so uh, we kind of, we go in between. I always find it fascinating when I go, well, typically when I end up going to a church, it's for either a wedding or a funeral. Um, so two like pretty uh, far extremes, I would say. But but I also think about like my experience there is probably like when some of my friends come to like my kids' bat mitzvah or something like that or, or a, a service um, where we're being honored in some way, shape, or form at the temple where there's you know there's these hymns and people are chanting and it seems like everybody knows it and I don't know any of it right and it's it's really kind of fascinating to to observe and and watch and I remember somebody coming up to me after my daughter's bat mitzvah like dude, like you really know Hebrew. And I'm like, actually, not really. Like if you put a book in front of me, I'd probably have a really hard time getting yeah. the words out. Yeah. Um, I'd be much better at Spanish if we're being honest. But uh, all of these like tunes are and songs and, and uh, chants are things that I've been hearing since I was a baby. So mm-hmm. at this point, it's like it just rolls off the tongue, second nature. And now you see your kids doing the same thing. Right. And and that to me is sort of like what it's what it's all about. The meaning of those words is something that I'm still trying to figure out and understand what it means to me. But the the chance and the the prose and the cadence of it is something that you pick up from a really young age. So, yeah, um, that's something I always find interesting. And it's eye opening, I think, because of my background in faith. When I do go to a church, I try to listen to the words and because most of them are in English and, and try to figure out you know, what are, what are they really saying here? Right. Where are these tunes coming from and um, the pace and the cadence of the pastor or the priest or the minister, whoever it is and how that differs from a rabbi or something like that. But it's fascinating. I don't know. Religion is one of those things and we're seeing it, you know, all over the world right now, people um, care deeply about religion. It's a little bit like politics in some ways it's personal to people. There's no, uh, there's, (laughs) there's a reason uh, why people feel a certain way uh, yeah. about their religion. But I think what's important is that you do have a faith and that that faith leads you to be open-minded um, and welcoming uh, in terms of thought. So it sounds like you've done a good job with your son um, in that. Man, I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times, right? Um, as a father yourself, but yeah, there's no book. So you kind of, you, you got to do what you think is right, what you believe in and hope that they pick up on those things um, and be there, um, be there when they fall. And because they got, they have bad days too. They make mistakes and they're not perfect little humans either as much as we like to think they are. Um, and uh, so I'm just, I'm just proud of who he's become right now. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to be there with him as he continues to grow there you go. Um, just a couple more questions before I let you go and, and uh, start telling your dog to shut up uh, here on a, on a beautiful Friday. Um, any, anything that you would go back in time and tell yourself, right? So you, you've had some time on this earth now, and um, it's my birthday. Birthdays are always a good time to reflect and, and look back. Yeah. Don't spend a lot of time doing that. 
but I'm curious if you would take take a moment and and kind of let us know if you were to give some advice to your younger self, your 20 year old self, your 18 year old self, your 25 year old self. Like, what would that advice be? And it can be anything. There's no right answer, no wrong answer. I'm just curious. Like, what would Stephen Anson tell younger Stephen Anson, or even tell your son when he's 20 years old? Um, just some sage advice. Man, that's that's hard, right? Because you 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 can look back on your life <clears throat> um, and see where you made a mistake. Sure. And wonder, like, what if I didn't make that mistake? Uh, what if I didn't do that thing that caused so many problems? Yeah. Um, and so it, it's hard to answer, you know, what advice you would give um, without thinking about making a different decision. Um, so I, I think for me, it would be. Looking at uh, as as I became an adult and was on my own, right, and um, trying to figure out things, um, not be so stubborn, and I have to figure this out myself. Hmm. Um, you know, lean on the people who have the experience. You know, your parents. <laughs> Your your grandparents, uh, you know, whoever it is, your 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 uh, mentors, right? Um, and don't make a decision all on your own. Uh, I think I did a lot of that in my in my twenties, and um, uh, my dad passed away eleven years ago, and it is crazy how much I wish I could get advice from him right now. You know, and so, so I think that would be it is don't, you know, people would say, well, don't do things in a vacuum, whatever. It's like, man, just don't be so stubborn and pigheaded that you think you have to figure stuff out on your own. I like that. And it actually reminds me of, so I, I love asking this question because I get so many different responses, right? Yeah. From, from the, uh, from the entrepreneur, from, from the, the CEO of a fast growing startup, they say, you know, w- whatever it is, you know, just go for it with conviction. Right. And for others, it's, you know, take time to to find yourself because you're going to work the rest of your life and your career. Right? It, it's different. It's you know, p- follow your passion. Uh, Matt Wilcoxon, who came on the Tripping Over the Barrel podcast, answered in a very similar way. He just gave it um, a work slant. Uh, he's like, my biggest advice for somebody young coming into business, or that I would have given to myself, is like, don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, and it's the, it's the same fundamental concept that you're talking about right now. Uh, I think you just took it sort of to a, a different level. I think that applies to business. It also applies to um, certainly your personal life. So I, I, I like that answer and I, I appreciate you, um, your thoughtfulness and, and in terms of, of sharing that. Um, you did mention, right, sort of one pretty embarrassing story. Country boy goes to the city. He's walking out the doors. He goes in the same, <laughs> the same rotating doors, right? A revolving yeah. doors as, as the boss. Anything else that comes to mind, either that you've presented or that you've attended where you're like, that was a disaster of a presentation. Oh, that was a man. terrible meaning. Anything uh, come to mind? You already shared a good one. So if the answer is you don't remember, that's fine too. You know, uh, gee, there's, there's plenty. Um, there's a couple that 
probably don't want podcasted. Um, <laughs> but, hmm. Man, I'm just going to stick with the revolving door for now. Yeah, that, that works just fine. Well, one that I'll share with you because it's always worth bringing up. I mean, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes and embarrassed myself many times over since then, but we'll stick no, with that one. No doubt. Yeah. So, you know, T- Tim loves her. Rest in peace. Great, great friend, uh, yeah. former podcast partner. When we started Tripping Over the Barrel, the name Tripping Over the Barrel even was was literally um, to try to can, you know conjure up some thoughts around physical comedy because we mm-hmm. had some good stories around physical comedy. And for me, kind of my most embarrassing story is I was at BHP Billiton in, in the Galleria in, in Houston. This is about mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm giving this really important presentation. It's, it's a room full of suits um, and decision makers. This is a meeting I've been really working hard to get. I finally get the meeting. I, I go through a passionate slide deck. I'm ready to hand it over to Sachin. All right, now Sachin's going to go do the demo. And I sit down and my butt like hit the front of the chair. You know what I mean? And didn't uh-huh. quite make it down and started to lean back. And the chair flies out from behind me. And the next thing you see, I'm on the ground and my legs are basically up by the table because I'm on my back right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> laying on the ground. And you hear this loud slamming noise. The chair goes flying right? Uh, the, the laptop gets mangled and these guys come over and, and they're like, dude, are you, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. But it's sort of one of those things where like, everyone's like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I guess now we move to the next part of the meeting. But it's one of those things too, where like I would see some of the guys from that meeting at different events or in different meetings going forward. And they'd always be like, so like, you remember, you remember when you fell. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to ever forget that one. Yeah. But Things like that. There's no better icebreaker than than something like that. Right? Sure, uh, sure. That keeps us all honest and humble. Could never script something like that. Uh, Stephen, where can people find you? Um, you know, online, Anson Measurement, your business, your company. Um, where are you at? Uh, I am only on LinkedIn. Okay. <laughs> I I, uh, I have done my best to avoid you know social media. Uh, whether it's to my detriment or not, but uh, I don't get into it. I'm not, never, I didn't, didn't jump on that bandwagon. So yeah, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Steven Anson with the PH. With right? a PH, that's right. Yeah. And it's Anson, A-N-S-O-N. A lot of people like to say Hanson. Uh, there's no H. No, right. It's funny because people usually just call me handsome. So it's, it's different. They call me handsome. They call you handsome, whatever. Um, but no, I just wanted to, to wrap up with this final thought. And, and this is something that I, I, I just wanted to share with you. So we didn't work together for that long. We didn't even work all that closely together, despite the fact that I was one of the people that interviewed you right. um, during your time at W. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the time that you spend with somebody in a work environment, you make a relatively quick decision on that person. It goes one of two ways. Did you like them or did you not? <laughs> and, yeah. and I like you. And I'm, I'm really glad that we did have the chance for our paths to cross, albeit briefly, and look forward to continuing to build uh, a personal and probably in other ways professional relationships with you, but you're, you're a good dude. And I uh, urge you to continue to be as authentic as you've, you've displayed to be with me. Uh, and I wish you and your family, nothing but the best. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, I would 
say that I have a lot of the same feelings towards you. Uh, you know, if I didn't, I wouldn't have told you I was coming to Colorado a couple <laughs> months ago and, and gone out and, and had dinner with you. So uh, I enjoy you. I appreciate you. I enjoyed the time uh, that we did work together. And I'm just glad that we get to stay in touch. And, and thank you for having me on uh, on your show, What the Funk. You know it. Appreciate it, man.